0: Welcome to the Partnership Economy. This podcast explores the power of partnerships through candid conversations with industry leaders. Join our hosts, Dave Yovano, CEO, and Todd Crawford, co-founder of impact.com, as they unpack the future of partnerships as a lever for scale and an opportunity
1: to put the consumer first. Welcome back to the Partnership Economy podcast. I'm your host, Dave Yovano, and I'm delighted to announce this week's guest, Courtney Spritzer. Courtney is the co-founder and CEO of Socialfly, a woman-owned and operated social media agency that develops social media plans for brands like Discovery, Conair, and Il Maquillage. From working in finance to building a thriving agency, Courtney is a great example of someone who turned their passion into a business model. With her decade-long experience, it was fascinating to hear Courtney's thoughts on how social media, and specifically influencer marketing, has evolved. She also shares some great insights into what it takes to start working with creators from the ground up, what types of creators brands should be focused on, how to measure results, and more. I highly recommend staying tuned to learn the ABCs of influencer marketing and get a sneak peek at where the industry is headed. Welcome back to the Partnership Economy Podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Courtney Spritzer. She's CEO and co-founder of Socialfly. Courtney, how are you doing today?
0: I am great, thank you. Thanks for asking.
1: Maybe to get us started, could you just share a little bit about yourself and this journey that you've been on to become the CEO and co-founder of a thriving social media agency? Tell us a little bit about that journey.
0: Yes, and thank you so much for having me. My business partner, Stephanie Carton, and I started Socialfly actually on the side of our full-time jobs back in 2011. I was working in corporate finance, and she was working in marketing and sales, and we both had a passion for social media, and we both saw how social media was being used at the companies that we were at. I was at American Express, and they were forming partnerships with Facebook, Foursquare, and Twitter really early before a lot of other large companies were embracing social media. And me being a few years out of college at that time, I realized that I'm a really hard worker. And if I'm going to spend this much time working, I want to do something that I'm passionate about. And at that time, it was social media. So I shared that with Stephanie. She also had a passion for social and wanted to start a company. So we decided to uh, test out whether or not there was something there with helping small businesses with their social media. So we decided to uh, work nights and weekends to really test the idea and get it off the ground. And after 10 months, we decided to quit our jobs on the same day with some savings. and. One thing led to another really from there, we, we really quit at the right time. Social media was still early where uh, not a lot of companies were embracing it. Uh, and it was really up to us to educate people and our clients on the benefits of social media uh, for their business and how it could really drive a big impact uh, for, for these businesses. Over the past 10 years, we've gotten to work with hundreds of brands, and now we focus on influencer, content marketing, and digital marketing. And Stephanie and I have also started some other business endeavors. Uh, One is Entrepreneista Media, which is a media company and private membership community for women entrepreneurs. Uh, And this is us taking everything we've learned over the last 10 years and helping the future generation of women
1: founders. It reminds me of how I got started in the late 90s. The internet was just kind of happening and I got into it just out of curiosity, just as a hobby, got into designing websites and things like that. Designed my graduate program, I went to the school at the George Washington University. Designed my graduate programs first website, but doing it not because I was thinking there was like a real business there. It was gonna be this tremendous industry. It just seemed like that was what was coming next. I can kind of see where this technology was going. Um, uh, seems like you had a little um, bit of the, the same experience, but, you know, that next generation of what was happening in social and with influencers, I think it's just great to hear, you know, stories because a lot of people talk about wanting to pursue their passions, but, you know, you really put that into action and you've been in the industry, like you said, for more than 10 years now. How would you say social media working with uh, influencers has evolved in your eyes just over the last call it five to ten years. Oh,
0: it has evolved so dramatically. I remember in the early days, uh, we actually Uh, worked with a lot of reality TV show personalities. Uh, And now, you know, you're on a reality show and you become an influencer overnight. Uh, But when we were helping them, we were helping them get on social. We were helping them set up their social accounts. They didn't even realize the impact they could make for a brand. And and we were helping them negotiate uh, their brand deals in the early days. But uh, a lot of brands also uh, didn't understand the impact that they could make so it was a, a big much bigger sell in the early days than it is now uh, brands have really come to realize how impactful using the right influencers can be in in your campaign uh, and it's also become a lot more measured uh, so for the influencer campaigns that we do now there is so much that goes into it uh, and I'll um, happy to happy to share all, all of the logistics uh, uh, with you, but it is uh, a pretty big undertaking when we're working on these influencer campaigns and finding the right influencers and providing the reports and coming up with the creative guidelines. Uh, it's it's takes a lot a big effort.
1: I used to be on the board of the IAB, the Interactive Advertising Bureau, back. Uh, like I said, when the internet was kind of first starting, it's probably closer to about 30 years now. And I, I remember one of the first things that we worked on as an industry group was standardizing ad units, ad size units, because everybody, every publisher was kind of doing their own thing. Um, and, you know, they, the, the, this uh, group basically said, look, if we're going to get big budgets, we've got to create some standards so that media packages can be sold and things like that. If I have to think about like what it's like to work with influencers and creators, you know, especially 10 years ago, but probably even so now things do seem a bit unstructured. There's no like real standards, I guess, uh, still in working with brands or maybe maybe we are working with creators. Maybe there has been some improvement. Maybe you can share a little bit about, um, you know, if a brand wants to start utilizing influencer marketing, now, what, what does that look like?
0: Yeah, I would say there's still a long way to go in terms of these blanket uh, standards, uh, especially when it comes to influencer pricing. We really see things when we're reaching out to influencers and the numbers that come back are really all across the board. Uh, But when we are helping a brand with their influencer marketing, the first thing that we ask the brand is, what's your ultimate goal? What do you want to achieve by working with influencers? And nine times out of 10, it's I want to drive sales. I want brand awareness. Uh, So when we are putting together these campaigns, we do it with their ultimate goals in mind. And what really drives the success of these campaigns are the influencers that the brands choose to work with. Every influencer does perform differently for a variety of different reasons. If an influencer is really impactful for one brand, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be impactful for for your brand. And and here's why. So, if you're an influencer, Uh, you can have a range of followers from as little as a 1,000 followers upwards to millions of followers and obviously everything in between. And we call those influencers, if you're uh, under 10,000, you're a nano or micro influencer. If you're over 10,000 to 250,000, you you might be a mid-tier influencer, we call you, or a macro influencer if you're over 500,000 or a mega celebrity type influencer if you're over a million. Those are the different categories of influencer. However, even if you have a million followers, you might not have a high engagement rate. Uh, There is a ton of, I would say, discrepancy that we see with influencers in what portion of their following is engaged, what portion is real or bots. Uh, So we do a lot of that vetting for the brands and we always put together influencer lists of influencers who have high engagement and who uh, have a real in, have a real audience, uh, that's super super important because it doesn't matter if you have so many people following you if they're not real or engaged. The other area where I see brands get it wrong all the time is they'll work with influencers who look like their target market, but don't reach their target market. So there are a lot of influencer tools out there that can help you analyze an influencers reach and influence and tell you things like, you know, what countries are they in? What states are they in? What ages of their audience? Are their audience male or female? And then we look at all of those demographics to make sure that the influencer actually reaches the audience that the brand wants to reach. Then there's the added component of the message. Uh, You wanna make sure that the influencer is the right person to share your brand's message and that it's an authentic message for them to be sharing. So a lot of times brands will partner with influencers that rarely ever talk about that type of product or the industry that that product is in. And usually those campaigns don't do well. But when the message is authentic, that's really when we see a big impact and a great result.
1: I had a funny story when I first started researching, working with, so this is years ago, um, just a personal story. I was working on some woodworking and I needed to know how to make a certain joint. So I look up a YouTube video, and here's this guy describing how to make this joint between two pieces of wood. And at the end of the video, he says, um, I forgot what the name of the product was. It was some sort of um, uh, device that holds the wood as you push it through the saw. And it was like micro jig or something like that. He said, yeah, uh, micro jigs no longer, Sponsoring my channel anymore, but you know what? I've been sleeping on this Casper mattress for the last six months. It's just like totally out of nowhere. But the way he sat on the mattress, he's got his cat sitting with him, and he shows us time-lapse video. It's funny that I still remember this. Brings it into his his uh, family room. He unwraps it. He's setting it up, and he's just talking about it. And I felt like you know, th- I just sat through an eight-minute video. This guy taught me how to do something. He sounds very believable. Granted, there's zero context on a mattress versus. The joint that he was making, uh, I can't remember how, how many followers he had. So I guess there's different ways in which you are classifying uh, influencers. I'm just trying to use this as one small example, of, right? It's it's by base, uh by uh, size of audience, it sounds like, but also like how relatable they are, uh, how aspirational they are uh, in terms of is this somebody who's just like me, or is this somebody who's a little bit more aspirational, a little bit more celebrity status. Uh, Where would you, where would you peg this guy, this woodworker guy? How would he fit into your classification system?
0: It really depends on how many followers, how many influencer or how many people follow him. Uh, That would be one way that I would categorize him. And then I would also call him a niche influencer. Uh, There's not tons of influencers that talk about what you just shared. So he's, he's probably one of, of very few uh, influencers that, that talk about that topic. So I would I would say he's more of a niche influencer and that really helps too uh, when you're an influencer to, to be different. There are so thousands and thousands of influencers now and everyone wants to be an influencer. Even little kids, when you ask them what they want to be when they grow up, sometimes you'll hear, I want to be an influencer. So it's definitely become much more mainstream. Uh, so to stand out, uh, it's great to have find your
1: niche. I think it's really interesting for brands to just realize just this very small example, how the consumer journey is evolving and changing, right? Maybe there is a TV ad that made me aware that maybe I wanna buy a direct-to-consumer mattress or I'm in need for a mattress, but you know, here's somebody that took took time to produce content about this thing and now he's backing a certain product. I feel some loyalty to him, I trust him, right? And I've looked at a lot of his videos and I may wanna click on his link, you know, the, his referral link to go and purchase where I know he'll get some credit for that. Whether that that's you know kind of like an awareness sort of thing, or somebody's doing like a deep product review and that's the content that you're searching for, would you agree that that has become in a lot of ways, a primary path for consumers to maybe become aware of a product, but certainly like the decision making step in the consumer journey deciding to buy that product based on a review or a recommendation that someone like that gives?
0: Absolutely, we always say that influencers can be helpful at every stage of the funnel. They are helping people discover new products. They are educating people on how to use the products and all of the benefits. And then they are sharing exclusive discounts and offers and links, as you mentioned, with with their audiences. So they're helping uh, marketers with all stages. And I'll share with you, for me personally, that is probably the only way at this point that I'm discovering a new product is if someone in my Instagram feed shares that product and and tells me about it. Otherwise, I'm not watching TV anymore. I rarely turn on the TV. I can't even remember the last time I saw a commercial, but with what my favorite influencers are are buying and doing, I'm watching that very closely. And I know that there's a lot of people like me out there.
1: Are you seeing uh, brands that you work with work with the full spectrum of creators, you know, all the way up to mega? I think you call them like the more celebrity or aspirational style all the way down to a micro influencer. Is it common to have a mix of all of them or does it really depend on the brand?
0: It really depends on the brand and the budget. It is not always feasible for everyone to work with a Kim Kardashian size influencer. Uh, Obviously, that comes with a very, very high budget. Uh, So I would say a lot of the brands that we work with, uh, depending upon their budget, will use a range of micros, nanos, uh, a bunch of mid-tiers. Uh, and that way they can work with many of them over the course of the year versus focus all of their efforts on on one or two people.
1: Mm-hmm. And how about those that are like just starting out? Sounds like you might recommend maybe to start with a micro or mid-tier versus going, going big right away and get some learnings.
0: Yes, yes. And again, your budget really dictates this. So if you're just starting out, I would recommend, and it really also depends on, who your target audience is and what exactly it is that you're selling. But when you're just starting out, uh, it could be good to just test out as uh, many micro-influencers as you can afford to work with just to test out different messages, gets a lot of content, and see what types of people uh, really perform for your brand or what types of influencers really perform for your brand. And then you can lose, use those learnings to work with uh, larger partners. If you're enjoying this podcast and want to learn how partnerships can help your business, visit impact.com. The world's leading partnership management platform.
1: And then, how about some of the more tactical like workflows? How are how are you finding these people? How are you uh, reaching out to them? How are you compensating them? Give us maybe just a high level on some of that effort.
0: Uh, so, when a brand comes to us and tells us who they want to reach. Sometimes we'll just have a few influencers in mind. And then we do that outreach um, either by finding their email and doing it directly or reaching out to their agent. Uh, And then we'll go back and forth um, negotiating based on what the brand wants and what the budget is. And once we are aligned on scope and price, we'll do all the contracting and uh, we handle everything
1: end to end. When you talk about um, performance compensation, so paying um, creators uh, a percent of sale, for example, I've, I've heard the whole gamut. There's like fixed fee, like a pay per, per post sort of arrangement. Uh, it could be commission-based, you know, commission only above a certain level of sales. What's the typical compensation arrangement for the different types of size of of creators that you're talking about?
0: I would say everything is negotiable. However, I think a lot of influencers prefer uh, flat fees uh, plus some sort of performance bonus. We can... structure things in all of the ways that you just described. I really like the idea of a performance bonus. So be very transparent with the influencer of what you're looking to achieve by working with them. And if they're able to achieve that, uh, pay them some sort of commission if you can track sales uh, or give them some some sort of bonus. But I think it's great when uh, interests are aligned and performance bonuses can do that. I also love when influencers are willing to use the affiliate links and are incentivized by by that sometimes the larger influencers will not do affiliate only deals but when they are it's it's great
1: yeah when you think about like the effort that it takes to produce content right it's not you know super easy right it takes time to one get to know the brand get to know the product maybe you're testing it out maybe you're reviewing it um you know forming an opinion on it but then you're actually producing the content you got to record it there is some effort uh, some production effort that kind of goes into it but the brand is not in full control of that message so i don't think they should bear the full risk either and so what you described there some sort of you know fixed fee or flat fee payment plus a commission on sales or uh, performance or a bonus commission on sales that does seem to be the right win-win, I think. Um, but then, obviously, it's it's all different based on you know, like the size of the creator's audience and their ability to really influence and engage. And I'm sure, like you said, everything you know is, is kind of negotiable. But that does seem to be the right balance, right? As some some form of 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 a, a flat fee plus a bonus, I think, does kind of align the right incentives in my mind. Is, is that kind of the way that you see it as well?
0: Yes, yes. And I will say one of the reasons for there needing to be a flat fee, especially for for certain creators, is that when you are contracting an influencer, you're buying the rights to that content. Or a lot of times, brands want the content to repurpose on their own social channels, their newsletters, their website, uh, and they we are negotiating the the type of usage and the term of usage, uh, and whether or not we want to repurpose that into a social media advertisement. So. By having a contract and payment for the influencer, you are getting all of those rights.
1: Yeah, that, I agree with that. That makes sense. Good. And then how about the measurement piece? You touched on this a little earlier, but I would imagine that clients are also asking you to help measure, determine the results of their partnership efforts. How do you measure results in affiliate marketing?
0: Yes. So uh, we, we measure results in a variety of different ways, but we are looking at the impressions. How many people did we reach with this piece of content? What were the actions people took? How engaged was that post? We look at likes and comments. And then Uh, With the links that the influencers provide or the coupon code, we are tracking how many people clicked on the post, did it generate any sales, did anyone redeem the coupon, and then we'll look at, okay, what did we pay them and, and did we see an ROI from this specific partnership?
1: And are you also handling other types of uh, paid media for your clients, like paid search or display advertising, or is it only working with creators?
0: Uh, Yes, we have a whole digital media buying team, uh, so we can buy across any platform. Uh, And with influencer marketing, uh, we do do a lot of whitelisting. So when we're working with a client, whitelisting is typically a portion of the campaign. And that for anyone listening is when we buy media on the influencer's account. So the ad comes from the influencer, not from the brand, uh, but it gives us added visibility into the performance of the content.
1: Okay. And then when you talk about the other types of uh, media, then I, I call it the the surround sound or the concert effect that all advertising has. Um, how do you see that working with, um, you know, the, the the types of work that you're doing with, with creators. Do you, do you feel that if you've got like other display or even other TV, uh, paid search, those type sort of channels on, does it make your uh, creator sort of marketing, you know, work harder essentially? And do you see better, better performance? Do you look at it through that sort of lens?
0: we actually don't we don't buy on on tv so we're not necessarily looking at through through that lens although we do partner with our clients and say okay this here's the performance of influencer what else did you have running at that time here's all the other channels that we were on uh, and here's the the impact that we saw and then we'll also look at uh, what happened when influencer wasn't as active, and was there an impact on on the performance of the other channels or vice versa? But typically, I would say we're looking at performance um, of just the just the influencer campaign, and then from time to time, we're we're kind of looking at everything holistically with our clients. Yeah,
1: because I see it as like nowadays. I mean, when you first started your your agency here, I think it was still the case where is predominantly like heavy advertiser or brand controlled messaging, right? They put ads out and people would almost, you know, just kind of unilaterally um, engage with that brand and buy that product. Now, it seems like there is a second step in that consumer journey where advertising might make them aware of something, whatever form that is, uh, digital or, or, or offline, but it's, I need to go check somebody else's opinion. And if they say this is a good product, then, then I'll buy. And that's the world of uh, partnerships, partner marketing, affiliate. To me, that's all interchangeable. This is where, you know, creators have content out there about, you know, these products. You've got larger publishers. I'd be curious to know if you're working with any of the, the larger uh, media houses like CNN Undersport or Vogue's shopping section, or uh, I know um, like Better Homes and Garden, like pretty much every major, you know, publication has a full-blown shopping section where you get teams, large teams of editors and they're reviewing products. Very similar to what creators and influencers are doing. But it seems like you need that third-party endorsement uh, to kind of break through that that you know authenticity requirement, really that 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 consumers are requiring today before they buy. Uh, do you think of it in a similar way?
0: I definitely do. Uh, I know that if I. Uh, happen to stumble upon an ad or see something on some website that I'm I'm reading, and then look at my phone and see an influencer say the exact same thing that I read. It further proves that I should consider buying that product. So it only helps. It it definitely doesn't hurt and. Again, a lot of these influencers, they have built these genuine authentic engaged relationships with the people that follow them uh, to the point where these, Followers are are buying almost everything that this person is is recommending, and they've built that trust with with their community. So uh, it's it's very very impactful. I know uh, one of my favorite influencers; um, he's Fla- Flav City or Bobby is his name, uh, the Grocery Guy. And I will tell you, I discovered him last year, and now anytime he recommends something, I just automatically go in and buy it. <laughs>
1: And it seems like those creators they put the their trust with their audience as first and foremost, right? And I and I think their audience realizes that as well. And and you, what's great about the social platforms now is there are checks and balances that are built in, right? People will call that creator out in the comments. They'll unsubscribe. And I don't think that a creator wants any of that stuff to happen. They want to, you know, keep keep growing their audience and be relevant and, and authentic, be seen as um, true to the audience. And so I think the 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 more successful ones or the majority of them do operate that with in mind. But I do think that there are more creators coming on, online more than ever. So I do see more people kind of crossing that line of being that cheesy salesperson. I just don't think that that's a sustainable strategy. I think they'll figure it out pretty quickly that that's not gonna work. We'll uh, go by the wayside and, but you know, the quality creators, cause that's kind of where it started honestly, when you look at the rise of uh, YouTube, for example, the content that came online were people that were just really passionate about these products. And it was more about social currency than it was monetizing. And it just seems like it's really taken on a whole new wave of its own of, you know, this next generation of, uh, you know, content creators that it's, it's about commercial information. It's about commercial content because this is what's in demand now. People are buying a lot of things. There's a lot of choice of things to buy now. And I think that the average consumer knows that this content about products exists out there. They're actively searching for it and that demand is creating more supply. And let's just hope that the creators do stay true to authenticity and loyalty to the audience. Um, yeah, I think I think it's in good shape now and, and will probably continue to evolve. But you mentioned an example of you personally, um, any other examples of, of clients that you work with, creators that they work with, that might be uh, helpful to share with the audience, just kind of bring it to life a little bit?
0: We work with Discovery Network on a campaign called Ghost Tober. Uh, and we were promoting uh, a series of scary TV shows. Uh, one was about a haunted house. And we contracted a very large influencer. Her name, his name is Ryan Urgara. And we did a really fun content series with him where he actually did uh, a live video stream of him going into a real live haunted house to promote the shows that were about to air. Uh, We actually won a Shorty Award for that campaign. And uh, it was a really big success. Also did that on TikTok and essentially launched their TikTok channel, which was also a really great added benefit to
1: the campaign. Very good. And before we finish the episode, just love to ask guests what trends that you're noticing. What's top of mind for you right now?
0: Yes. And you alluded to it too. There are tons of people who are trying to be influencers or creators. And what's really, really important is to grow now, it's much harder, a little bit easier on TikTok that that platform still gets a lot of organic reach. But I will say it's a lot harder to grow a following on Instagram. So that's definitely a trend that I'm seeing. Um, but what helps is that the content should not always be sponsored. You want to really share your life with your audience in a really authentic way and and find ways to engage with them, whether that's um, you know, sharing funny stories or getting really personal personal and sharing your personal life. By being really authentic and open and sharing constantly, that's how you're going to connect and grow a following these days. It's not about being aspirational. It's actually about being relatable and inspirational. And then another thing that I'm seeing uh, is that there are platforms like Geneva and Circle that will give influencers the ability to create private communities and allow their audiences to meet and talk to each other and connect with them in a more private exclusive way uh, than they can on Instagram or TikTok. Uh, So, I'm seeing a lot of influencers embrace that. That's actually something that we do at Entrepreneista. Our membership includes a private community that's uh, set up through Circle. And it's been so, so helpful in getting our members to engage with each other and get to know each other.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I love your tip about uh, just being more relatable as a creator. You know, that sounds like a pro tip on how you really continue to build up your following is being relatable. And one, Pro pro tip that I picked up from a creator was you have to show your face and be comfortable with that. And it seems like a line that's really hard for some people to cross. You know, it's kind of like, are you going all in on being a creator? If so, you really got to put yourself out there. Not everybody's off work. It kind of reminds me of that book. And I think they made a movie of it called The Circle, where it just talks about putting everything out there, you know, to, to, to be judged. Uh, but it seems like people who are comfortable with that and can connect with their audience uh, in that authentic way, it can be. You know, a real um, career, you know, for, 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 uh, for people. I heard, heard somebody told me recently that uh, they surveyed people coming out of school now, and um, the majority of them want to be creators. That's like the number one career that's being demanded uh, these days. So be curious to see how, how this continues to evolve.
0: Yeah, I, I am very curious. I've seen uh, toys in the toy store of these creator kits that are sold to three and five-year-olds. Mm-hmm. So uh, times have <laughs> definitely changed.
1: Yep, yep. Very good. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Courtney. That was awesome. And I highly recommend listening to Courtney's podcast, Entrepreneista, to hear more of her insights there. So thanks again for joining me and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We'll see you next time.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: The influencer landscape is vast and is crucial to determine what types of creators will work best with your brand's goals. Courtney shared a helpful breakdown of how to categorize creators and some strong advice for brands who are just starting out. You don't need to have all the budget in the world so that you can work with one or two huge mega influencers. It might actually be more beneficial to start with micro and mid-tier influencers, spread your budget across a wider number of creators and really test what messaging works for your audience. It was also fascinating to hear where the influencer industry is headed in the rise of exclusive audience communities. As the number of creators continues to grow, it makes sense that audiences are searching for even more authenticity and intimacy. These communities that some followers are paying to be part of seem like a great way for a creator to strengthen their connection with their audience. As always, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Thank you, Courtney, for joining us on the Partnership Economy Podcast, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to The Partnership Economy brought to you by Impact.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to the show and rate and review it on Apple Podcasts.